everyone and welcome to Elementary My Dear. I'm Emer McGuire and on today's episode we're talking about radioactivity. Mike Sims tells us about the radioactivity all around us, while author Kate Moore tells us the devastating story of the radium girls. This is a six-part series where we explore the wonders of some of the most fascinating elements in the periodic table. Elements are everywhere. And each week, we discuss their importance in unusual places, from the elements used in the art world to where to find a meteorite. And today's episode is all about radioactivity. Coming up on today's episode, I talk to elements expert Mike Sims. He tells me about radioactivity in unusual places, like your fruit bowl. One banana is, is essentially the equivalent of about 1% of your average background dose of radiation you're getting from all sources from from space and from the from the things around you so it is it's quite a a flight i say a four or five hour flight uh will be about 40 microsieverts so that's about 400 bananas yeah so you could fly for four hours or eat 400 bananas or you could do both yeah yeah, Uh, very very unpleasant flight (laughs) i also chat with author kate moore who tells me the devastating story of the radium girls these were women and girls who suffered horrendous radium poisoning while working as watch dial painters during the First World War. Their suffering was horrific. Essentially, in swallowing the radium, it had settled in their skeletons, in their bones, and there emanated its immense radioactive power. And in so doing, it destroyed the women from the inside out. Let's start things off with Mike. So today, Mike, we are going to be talking all about radioactivity. And I know a lot of people are quite fearful of radioactivity, especially since people have been kind of binging on the recent Chernobyl TV show. But should we worry about it so much? Is it not just another facet of elements on the periodic table? Well, it, it is. It's very much um, uh, you know, another, another end of the sort of spectrum, as it were. Because you get, uh, within the periodic table, you've got all these elements and they're made of kind of individual atoms. And a lot of those are going to be quite stable. These atoms just sort of sit there and, and in several billion years' time, they'll still be exactly the same. But some of them are going to be a little bit unstable. And it's essentially that the bigger the atom gets, the, the less stable it is. So in everyday life, we are surrounded by things which have a certain level of radioactivity in them there's some of those atoms are going to be slightly unstable and when they kind of ping and they they split into other lamps they'll release a little bit of radioactivity but it's um nothing to get worried about unless you go to chernobyl or somewhere like that um because the levels are really quite low and and life on earth has has adapted to be able to sort of cope with these sort of things and in fact it's been thought that that the evolution of life on Earth may, in fact, well owe quite a bit to uh, formerly higher levels of, of radioactivity if you go back two, three billion years' time. I know you've said there there's kind of uh, radioactivity around us. Do you mean, is there actually radioactivity in our homes? Is there radioactivity in unusual places where we wouldn't expect to find it? Yeah, because unless we're going to really purify all the materials we use to the nth degree, where we're removing every single sort of, because a lot of things like, you know, concrete and such like, you know, we'll have little bit of impurities. So some of the minerals that are used might have, you know, the occasional uranium atom in it or whatever, or thorium atoms. So those are going to be slightly 
radioactive and they'll just be sort of pinging off um, uh, from from time to time. But unless we're going to really refine things, no, it's always going to sort of be there in, in the sort of background. But but also we're getting it from, from space as well. You know, and there are cosmic rays as well, which are slightly different, but they're having the same sort of effect. But living things can actually cope with a certain degree of, of radiation. And what about um? What about kind of everyday items? Are there everyday items around that have a little bit of radiation in them or radioactivity? Well, actually, the 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 one of the well known ones, of course, is the banana. <laughs> um, and there is actually a thing called the banana equivalent dose. Now I have heard about this, and it's kind of made me uh, avoid yeah. bananas because now I think they're radioactive. Are they actually? Slightly, but not not to get worried about. The thing about the banana equivalent dose, it's not an entirely serious unit it's the dose of radiation you get from eating one banana as, it, as its name implies um because bananas are quite rich in potassium as we well know you see but not all potassium is stable there's a, an isotope of potassium they're different each element will have different isotopes and that's this it's got the same number of protons in it but it's got a slightly different number of neutrons and so potassium 40 as we call it is slightly radioactive. It has a half-life of about one and a quarter billion years, which means after one and a quarter billion years, you've only got half as many of those potassium-40 atoms as you did have. And the banana, because it contains potassium, will have a certain number of these potassium-40 atoms in it, you see, and those will decay. Not very quickly, you know, uh, not very many of them, so it's not that's alarming and the dose you get from one banana is what's called it's a a unit they're measured in sievers this radio radiation dose and they have uh was it 0.1 micro sievers that's one ten millionth of a siever which is not not too much (laughs) not very much how many bananas would i need deep before i'd have radiation poisoning to kill yourself you need to eat 350 million bananas. All right, okay. I'm a couple couple million off that. So yeah, yeah. And no, I think that would take... That'd be, that'd be in one day, you know, really. So so it's really, really very, very low indeed. So uh, one banana is, is essentially the equivalent of about 1% of your average background dose of radiation you're getting from all sources, from from space and from the from the things around you. So it is, it's quite a, a flight. I say a four or five-hour flight... Uh, will be about 40 microsieverts. So that's about 400 bananas. Yeah. So you could fly for four hours or eat 400 bananas. Or you could do both. Uh, yeah. yeah no, a very, <laughs> very unpleasant flight. <laughs> what about other things? You know, I've heard that there is a little bit of radioactivity and things like toothpaste. Is there anything else like that that has... Well, another, another one, actually, there's uh, a lot of these you know, materials where they're kind of using... Uh, Natural materials will have that in. Another one I particularly like is is Brazil nuts. Okay. Brazil nuts, which I don't like anyway, which is fortunate. Um, Brazil nuts, uh, in some of them, can actually have a thousand times the background level of radium. But since the background level of radium is generally pretty close to zero, a thousand times almost nothing is nothing. slightly more than almost <laughs> nothing. Um, yes, yeah, so that's uh, uh, another one that where... Th- the, the thing about Brazil nuts is they're tending to uh, concentrate that, that kind of radioactive material and also they are um, the places that Brazil nuts tend to grow quite often the soils are, are relatively enriched in these kind of radioactive elements but it's still incredibly low levels of uh, n- nothing to be worried about 
the thing about Brazil nuts actually is don't eat too many of them because they contain quite high levels of selenium. So selenium activity doesn't get you? The selenium, <laughs> one Brazil nut a day is actually, for my mind, too many. No, but they're, they're, you can suffer from the ill effects of too much selenium if you eat too many Brazil nuts. And are there any positives associated with radioactivity? So far it all seems like doom and gloom, but could we use radiation for good? Well, there's lots and lots of uh, possibilities. There's some are used, some very short-lived uh, radioactive isotopes that are generated in environments and power stations are used as, as, as sort of traces. So you feed them to, this sounds terrible, doesn't it? You feed them to people that are, to, to try and track down where things are going on. So you can inject them, you know, into bloodstream or whatever. And because they show up, they, they can be detected. But they've got very, very short sort of half-life. So they kind of, they dissipate quite quickly. So they have to be made uh, of, almost at the point of use um, and then use. And it does, so it doesn't linger and kill the patient, which you wouldn't really want. Which is not the, the outcome no. you're going for. Um, no. <laughs> there are a couple of uh, interesting stories about people and radioactivity. Yes. Um, could you tell me a little bit about the story of Eden Byers? Yeah, Eden Byers, he was around sort of late 19th, 30, 20th century. He was a kind of great socialite and, and sportsman. He was the he was the US amateur golf champion in 1906, you see. And anyway, a um, bit of a playboy. And he fell out of a, a berth in a, a railway sleeping car in, in 1927 and injured his elbow quite badly. So he was in a lot of pain, you see. And he went along to his physician and his physician recommended, oh, you should try this new wonder material or wonder drug called Radiothor. Uh, Radiothor was essentially uh, water infused with radium. Oh. Radium, a, a compound of radium, you see. Because radium had been discovered not that long before and it was thought to be a kind of wonder material, you know. Yeah, people thought it was dark. good for you. They did, they did. It kind of turned up in all sorts of things. So Radiothor, it was was essentially marketed by this um, quack, quack physician, you see. <laughs> uh, and because uh, Eden Byers was really quite wealthy, he could afford to drink a lot of this stuff you see uh, and he found that certainly for the first couple of years it did invigorate him and he felt you know greatly uh, improved but anyway then uh, things didn't go so well he stopped uh, he stopped about two and a half three years later drinking after he drank about 1400 glasses of this stuff Ooh. you see and um, anyway then he died and the head one of the headlines said something he was fine till his jaw dropped off. So, you know, be careful of quack medicine is definitely the take-home take message from that. That's quite a quite a scary story. Um, you told me a story another time as well about radioactive Boy Scout, a very enthusiastic Boy oh, Scout yes. who kind of suffered some of the effects. Would you tell me tell me about him? Yeah, it's a guy called David Hahn and, uh, in, in Michigan and he was a, a very enthusiastic scout and he got his, um, I've forgotten what, the badge was called something like the atomic energy badge or whatever because you could the eagle scout and you could do all these badges you know and he had lots and lots of these different badges uh and anyway he got his badge and he was very pleased with that and he thought well, I, I quite like to make my own nuclear reactor you see so um, as you do you know he'd actually he'd kid. actually got really into into kind of chemistry and chemical experiments and things like that in the good old days this was kind of uh mid to late 80s uh when chemistry sets, proper chemistry sets. And anyway, he'd at his father's house, he had 
done various experiments and he'd blown up his room and, and eventually his father had banished him because uh, uh, he caused too much damage. So he moved to his mother's place and then he started trying to build an, a nuclear reactor, you see. And of course, how do you get nuclear material? You know, nobody's going to have to send you some uranium rods. He tried to uh, process some uranium ore, but that didn't work. And then he cottoned on to the fact that if he wrote to various manufacturers of things like uh, smoke detectors, which contained small amounts of uh, americium in them, and he wrote under the pseudonym of a, of a, a master of physics at his college. Not a random 14-year-old. Uh, no, no, he wasn't. Teenage no, boy. No, he, and, uh, and also then he got, um, he got a, a, a clock with radium dial, and he found that there's a little vial of radium paint inside it, you know, for touching up the, the dials. So he thought, oh, great. So he had that... Um, and he built this little thing, and he had a he kind of hollowed out lead brick, you see, and he built this uh, little thing, which it never got to go critical, which is a good thing, but it became a neutron source. So it was, it was effectively irradiated the, the shed at the bottom of his mother's garden. And he was just uh, found out almost by chance. Police stopped him for some other reason, and then the boot of his car was all this radioactive stuff. He wanted, ultimately, a bit of an odd character, I think, he wanted to go into the nuclear safety sort of business but um, when he applied for a job they turned him down because he would have effectively had already had his lifetime's dose <laughs> so of radiation being the safety officer coming in absolutely glowing yes yes <laughs> so uh, it is one of those things you tend to sort of think oh that must have been you know 50s 60s something like that it was late 80s you wouldn't think that could possibly be so recent in history you'd think it was a story from the 40s or 50s yes because there's a there's a marvelous thing we actually have in the elements exhibition called the atomic energy lab mm -hmm. which is a bit like a chemistry set um but rather than dealing with chemical experiments it deals with uh, atomic energy and it has amongst other things it has you can build your own little uh, cloud chamber you can see little atomic particles zinging through this cloud um, a spintharoscope, which is a thing where you can see little flashes of little particles zinging across your eyes, and a Geiger counter to presumably be to measure how contaminated you'd become. And this was from the very, very early 50s, um, and they've become real kind of collector's items because not many of them were made. They were very expensive at the time, and most kids wouldn't have had a foggiest notion what was going on. Um, so I'm very pleased you know, that we've got one in the museum, which is well worth going to have a look at because the, the graphics are kind of real iconic 1950s mm -hmm. dawn of the nuclear age. Definitely, especially if you want to kind of channel the radioactive Boy Scout, you can come down and have a go at it. Mike, thank you very much. Pleasure. You're listening to Elementary, My Dear, with Emer Maguire. Next up, I chat with Kate Moore. Kate is the author of The Radium Girls, it's a book exploring the story of the women and girls who worked in radium dial factories in World War One. Hi Kate, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. So Kate, for anyone who isn't familiar with your book yet and the lives of the radium girls, could you give us a brief overview of their story? Of course. These women were incredible. They're my heroines. They were young women who were employed to paint watches and clocks with radioactive, luminous radium paint. So they made these watches and clocks glow in the dark and they were taught to lip point, which means a technique where they were taught by the companies to put their paintbrushes between their lips to make a fine point for the delicate handiwork. So as they were painting, they were swallowing some of the radioactive paint. 
Now, they were told that it was completely safe. And at the time we're talking about in the 1910s and 1920s, radium was actually seen as this safe, healthful wonder element. People drank it as a health tonic. Uh, the recommended dose was five to seven glasses a day. And people put it in cosmetics to give you a glowing complexion. And so the women thought they were completely safe to be lipping and dipping their brushes in this way. But of course, because they're swallowing radioactive paint, we now know that that is incredibly dangerous. And so the radium girls over the years began to get sick and the companies refused to admit responsibility. And so the women embarked on a landmark fight for justice, a fight for justice that brought about changes in workers' rights and made things safer for all workers but also a fight that fought for recognition of this radium poisoning and, of course, brought to public attention the dangers in radioactive materials. And so that, for me, is why they're my heroines, because they fought in the most appalling pain, the most appalling conditions while they're being discredited and told they're liars and cheats and frauds. And they stood up for what they believed in and they fought for their rights. And in so doing, they made the world a better place. It's quite an unbelievable story and it's it's a devastating story for the women and girls that were that were involved in it. Um and it's interesting what you're saying about the radium that people actually, you know, thought it was good. And I've heard things about the woman putting radium on their teeth to make them glow or putting radium on, you know, for nights out to make them make them more attractive and things, you know, there was so much radium at this time. But why did they need things like the radium watches? What was the importance of that? Well, as you mentioned at the top of the podcast, these women were painting during the First World War. And of course, that led to a huge boom in the demand for luminous um, instruments because the women were painting soldiers' wristwatches, for example. By the end of the First World War, one in six American soldiers had a luminous watch. But they were also painting military instruments. So the ship's compasses, for example, uh, gun sights, the instruments that lit up the dashboards of ships and planes and automobiles. And of course, with a war raging across the world, all of those things were in an enormous demand. And so that's where the radium dial painting industry really took off. But as you've mentioned, actually, there was also a sort of public demand for it as well, so that even after the war ended, people would use radium to paint things like uh, the eyes on children's dolls to make them glow in the dark. Um, it was a product that was an international craze, and they actually put it in things like chocolate, so you could get a boost from the radium as well as the sugar and the cocoa, it seems extraordinary to our modern mindset, understanding the dangers of radioactivity as we do. But at this time, radium was seen as this elixir of life and youth, and its immensely powerful half-life, it has a half-life of 1,600 years, that was actually seen as potentially the answer to human immortality, and when I was researching my book, I found newspaper articles and headlines that were urging readers to eat radium tablets because the headline said doing so would add years to our lives. 
people thought that in consuming radium, we as humans were going to live forever. And of course, the exact opposite is what happened when you consumed radium. That's unbelievable that there was such a public push for something that was there was so little known about. And I was kind of thinking about the book, you know, Radium Girls. How come the book is all about girls? Were there no radium boys or radium men in these companies? There were, and that is partly the interesting thing about the Radium Girls story. So the dial painters, the, the people who were actually painting the instruments and putting their brushes in their mouths, they were entirely female and actually almost entirely uh, young workers. Most of them were teenagers. Records show that actually some of the dial painters were as young as 11, but most of them were sort of 13, 14, 15, 16 years of age. They were very young women. There were men working in the radium firms. They tended to be the chemists, the laboratory workers. And one of the shocking things about this story is that the men in the laboratories were protected. They were issued with lead aprons and ivory tipped tongs, while the girls were told that it was safe to put the brushes in their mouths. And the difference, other than gender, is that the men were handling large amounts of radium. And that was already proven to be dangerous. The Curies who discovered radium had already suffered radiation burns. They knew that a large amount was dangerous and could kill you. People thought that a small amount was safe, which is why the women were told that it was okay to put the brushes in their mouths. That is horrific, isn't it, though, if you're thinking about men getting all this protective equipment and there are 11-year-old girls there ingesting this highly dangerous element. It's quite, it's quite scary. You obviously did a lot of research for this book. How close did you get to these women and their lives? I mean, did you, did you meet with their families? Yes, I did. My mission in writing my book was to restore these women to their individuality and their humanity. I think many people have never heard of their story and those that have only know them by this nickname of the Radium Girls. And they didn't know about Grace Fryer, who was an incredibly intelligent young woman who went on to become the head of her department in a bank. They didn't know about Catherine Dunahue, who was an incredibly devout woman who had two young children at the time she was suffering radium poisoning. And for me, what I wanted to do was to follow in these women's footsteps, to listen to their voices, to read their letters, their diaries, their court testimonies, and bring those personal stories to life. So yes, a huge part of my research was going to America, interviewing their sons, their daughters, their sisters, and to find out who these women were, what their passions were, what their hobbies were, and to learn firsthand about their strength and their suffering. I think that's a, a very interesting point that you said there, you know, getting to know the woman and knowing their stories, because you really told the woman's stories and made it personal. And the fact that it was such a human story probably would make people more compassionate about the devastation that those women went through. Was that kind of a conscious choice in terms of why you wrote this as kind of nonfiction, but, but in the style of a novel as opposed to a textbook? Yeah, I, I felt passionately that I wanted readers to empathise with these women, to walk in their footsteps, you know, to, to walk with them on this journey that they go through, because 
it's a heartbreaking journey, you know, especially because the women thought they were lucky to be dial painters, to be working with this glamorous, healthful substance. Um, and so the book takes you on that journey with them. And as I mentioned, I draw on the women's first person accounts throughout. So I hope as readers read the book that they will encounter these women as friends. They will hear from them in their own words what it was like to be a radium girl. And I felt passionately in writing this book, but I didn't want it to feel like dry and dusty history that's 100 years old. I wanted it to feel immediate. I wanted readers to get to know these women and I wanted them to grieve as I do, as their relatives did, when the women suffer and pass away and to cheer for them as they make enormous strides forwards for humanity and for history. And I wanted the reader to sort of have a, a sort of first-hand seat uh, at this story and so they could experience it with the women. I think the human side of it really comes across, you know, whenever you're talking about the story and about the legacy that, that these women have left behind. And so we'll talk a little bit more about the, the radium and the impact on the women. So some of these women were, well, some of them weren't women, some of them were very young girls. How long was it before, you know, they were working with the radium until they started to get sick? Well, it varied from woman to woman, but on average, it was maybe a couple of years before they started to get sick. And that was part of their struggle because many of them were no longer dial painters by the time the sickness set in. So when they're trying to hold the companies to account, it's immensely difficult for the girls. And their suffering was horrific. Essentially, in swallowing the radium, it had settled in their skeletons in their bones, and there emanated its immense radioactive power. And in so doing, it destroyed the women from the inside out. And so their symptoms would be that a tooth started to hurt, for example, quite an innocent way to begin what was a horrific journey. They'd go to the dentist to have the tooth pulled, but then the next tooth would start to hurt, and then the next tooth, and the next until the girls didn't have to go to the dentist anymore to have their teeth pulled because they simply fell out on their own. And they found that it wasn't just their teeth. Their jawbones started to splinter until the women could literally pick out pieces of their bones from their mouths. They found that their legs and arms began to spontaneously fracture their legs began to shrink so that one might end up four inches shorter than the other. When they studied the women, they found that their bones were honeycombed and moth-eaten in appearance. They had holes in them. Holes that had been drilled there by the radium while the women were still alive. The pain is just incredible and unimaginable. Catherine Sharp, who's one of the radium girls, she tried to describe it once and she said the only thing she could compare it to was a dentist drilling on a live nerve, minute after minute, hour after hour, day after day. That's what was happening to the radium girls. And that is such a horrific thing to happen from you just doing your job and being told that the radium is safe and it's fine for you to work with. And obviously as the woman started to become unwell, 
it's almost with the radium, it's almost as if our bodies think that radium is calcium. So the radium, the woman that were exposed to it, the radium went right into their bones like calcium would. And obviously, as you're saying, their bones were like honeycomb and they were starting to rot really from the inside out. It's just horrific. And one of the things that really had stood out to me that I had read about the radium girls was the fact that one of the ladies went to have a tooth out and a piece of her kind of rotted jawbone came out as well. And I thought, for those women who don't know what's wrong with them, that is such a horrific thing. Imagine that happening to you. Um, and I just thought that was horrific. But you've kind of touched a little bit on it was difficult for the woman to fight the companies because by the time the symptoms had arisen, a lot of times they'd already left the companies. But they did take a stand against the companies that ruined their lives. How did they do this? You know, how did the companies react and how did the woman take them on? Well, I mean, I think people have said to me when they read the book that it's almost a sort of textbook example of how companies try to cover up the truth because these women had to fight so hard to get attention, to be believed, um, let alone to try and win justice and mercy from people. And so it's the women really who first figure out what is going on because you know, with this job being seemingly such a wonderful job for the women, one of the tragedies for me is that they actually promoted it to their friends and their sisters and their cousins. So you ended up with women that knew each other really, really well working in the studio. So, of course, when they do start to get sick, they're still in touch with their sisters and their cousins and their friends. So it's the women who first realise something is going on. But they're not believed. The companies try and discredit them. They cover up expert reports that prove the link. They try and discredit the girls by hiring private detectives, for example, to dig up dirt on them, by putting out misinformation that uh, confuses people. And this was an incredibly powerful company as well, a company that had government contracts and therefore government contacts. And it was an incredibly wealthy firm as well. Radium at the time we're talking about was the most valuable substance on earth. A single gram in 1917 would set you back the equivalent today of $2.2 million. So this is a company that has all the money and all the contacts it likes at its disposal. And so as the girls start trying to fight back against this powerful corporation, it takes years. Lawyers won't take their case. It takes two very, very special men, two lawyers, um, to fight for these women. And it takes years, I mean, decades for the women to bring about this fight for justice. And their perseverance and their strength in light of that very difficult battle, in light of their neighbours shunning them, in light of them being called liars and cheats and frauds, is for me just extraordinary because they kept on fighting no matter what the company threw at them, no matter what the company did to try and wriggle out of its responsibilities. These women kept on fighting. And these women were obviously incredibly brave in that fight for justice that they went through. And I know that some impact and improve safety standards, and they also contributed to the body of research into radium. What do you feel was their legacy? It's a quite extraordinary legacy. As I mentioned, this was one of the first times, um, you know, the type of radiation poisoning the girls suffered of that tiny amount of radium within the human body 
was a type of radiation poisoning that had never been seen before in human beings. And so these girls unwittingly became these scientific pioneers. No one else had suffered in the way that they had suffered. And these women altruistically, voluntarily submitted to medical tests so that science could learn from their bodies about safe levels of radiation, about uh, how much a human body should or could be exposed to radiation. The answer is you shouldn't change the radioactivity of the human body. But these women submitted to these medical tests and because of that, science was gifted with all this knowledge and that was hugely important. Because of the girls' courage in standing up and saying, this is happening to us, this is true, radium is dangerous, they protected not only future generations of radium dial painters for whom safety standards and protective measures were put in place, but they also protected the millions of people who work in the atomic industries. Now, that made itself known very quickly during the Second World War, when the Allies are working on the Manhattan Project. And thanks to the radium girls, the bosses on that project insisted on doing biochemical research into the radioactive materials. It was found biomedically very similar to radium. And so because of the girls' sacrifice, those workers on the Manhattan Project were protected. And the legacy stretches further as well into the 1950s when a nuclear arms race is happening across the globe during the Cold War. And partly thanks to the radium girls and the knowledge that we had gained of what radioactivity, even in small levels, does to your body. Partly thanks to them, the limited test ban treaty was signed. And so these women left an extraordinary legacy in science, in safety standards and in legislation because theirs was one of the first cases where an employer was held responsible for the health of their employees. And of course, that, that protective measure, that position, enhances all our health and safety today. And it's so important to remember that people sacrificed themselves for the regulations and protections that we enjoy today. And there was obviously unbelievable devastation with these women, but as you say, the legacy that they have left behind in terms of safety standards and even scientific knowledge and research has been has been quite incredible. Now, I know you said some of these girls were as young as 11, 13, 14 when they were working. Am I right in thinking then whenever these women had died from the radiation poisoning that they were still very young women? It, it varied, but yes, some of the women were 20 years old when they died. One of the horrifying things about radium poisoning, though, is it almost has sort of uh, two tiers of the way it affects the women. So some women, um, especially those who were young, very young when they dial painted, they got very sick within the first couple of years and they passed away very swiftly. But for other women, those who were perhaps a little bit older when they were dial painting and whose bodies perhaps were more able to withstand the changes that were being wrought, they were killed in a different way. They were killed by latent sarcomas, bone tumours. And those tumours could start to grow perhaps a decade or two decades after the women were dial painting. So those women might die in their 30s or their 40s. But these bone tumours would eventually start to grow. It, it was almost like they had a ticking time bomb inside their bones. 
and these sarcomas were horrendous, huge growths, these cancerous masses that could grow anywhere on the body, on the women's knees, on their hips, uh, in their genitals, on their eyes. And it was those cancerous tumours that would kill the second wave of dial painters. So it was horrific because they might have thought themselves lucky to escape the early poisoning, but in fact, they weren't safe. And it was this insidious, horrible poisoning that lived with them because once the radium was in their bones, and this was a key fact, there was no way of getting it out. So that innocent act of swallowing the radium paint, putting the paintbrush in their mouths that they did when they were teenagers actually affected them all through their lives. I think insidious is probably the perfect word for this story and for the for the outcome of what happened. Just before you go, Kate, I just wanted to ask about the woman who were killed by this radium. You'd said about radium having a, a huge half-life. Would they still be having the effects now? Yes, they will, because the radium in their bones is still in those skeletons emanating its radioactive rays. And it will be doing that for, you know, on its first half-life, 1,600 years. And so the women's bodies in their graves are still radioactive. That's such a terrifying thought to end the conversation on. It's bizarre to think these women will glow in their graves for what seems like an eternity. But it's also uplifting to hear the legacy that these wonderful women have left behind in spite of all of the hardship and devastation they had to go through. Kate Moore, the author of The Radium Girls, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you to today's guests. After today's episode, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be avoiding Brazil nuts from now on. Also, I just couldn't get over the story of the radioactive Boy Scout building a nuclear source in his garden shed. It turns out that this guy, actually called David Hahn, was arrested in 2007 for stealing smoke detectors from his apartment building. Apparently he was taking them to get a maraschium from them, which is another radioactive material. Interestingly, whenever he was arrested, his mugshot at the time showed his face covered in sores, and police thought that that was either from all of his contact with radioactive material or possible drug use. Unfortunately, David Hahn died at 39. His death wasn't related to radioactivity, but it was accidental. The story of the Radium Girls was eye-opening today. I can't imagine the devastation felt by these women and their families as their lives and their bodies started to corrode. Imagine going to work healthy and coming home poisoned. I'm glad that all the suffering these women went through at least left the legacy of improved standards for new generations. Thank you to those women for their huge contribution to safety and science. To end today's episode, I thought I'd share a fascinating fact with you all on today's theme of radioactivity. Any football fans out there? I absolutely love football, and this summer, Northern Ireland played against Belarus. The match was around 280 miles from Chernobyl. This is of course the scene of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in 1986, which is widely considered the worst nuclear disaster in history. Now there is an exclusion zone around the Chernobyl site in Ukraine, but that zone also includes the Ukrainian border in the southeast of Belarus. In the run-up to the match, the Northern Ireland Foreign Office told any Northern Ireland fans heading to watch the team to stay away from some foods like milk and cheese and even some berries and mushrooms because they said they might still have high levels of radiation in the aftermath of the disaster. 
It just shows you how long radiation hangs around. If they're playing there again and anyone's heading, you may all bring your own flask of tea and a packed lunch. We hope you enjoyed this final episode. You can listen back to the entire series wherever you get your podcasts now. Keep an eye out for future podcasts from me and from National Museums NI. Thank you for listening to Elementary, my dear, with me, Emer McGuire. forget to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. Also, I would really love if you could take the time to leave us a review. Reviews help other like-minded people discover our podcast. Elementary, my dear, is created by Emma Maguire and National Museums Northern Ireland. You can also follow me on Facebook at Emer Maguire, on Twitter at Emer M Official and on Instagram at Emer Maguire Official. For further information, you can check out National Museums Northern Ireland at nmni.com.